Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Like most of the rest of the world, I first discovered today's guest, Maggie Smith, no, not the legendary British actress, the American poet, when her poem Good Bones went viral on social media and thrust her into the news on both sides of the Atlantic. It's the kind of exposure people dream of. But in Maggie's own words, my marriage was never the same after that. And I know that sentiment is something that's going to resonate with so many of you. Maggie's new book, her debut memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, is about the collapse of that marriage. But it's also about the start of something new. How in losing their shared history and knowledge of the future, she was able to build a new story her own. Anyone's advancement in their career or promotion or move because of a job change or even, even, you know, a pregnancy, like going from one child to two children, all of these things are like the best things, but also not uncomplicated. Maggie joined me from Ohio to talk about putting herself back together after sudden success destroyed her marriage, being a service provider in your own home how she got herself back after years of bargaining bits of herself away, and why we keep on having the same conversation about women and ambition. We also compared our strong first daughter energy, and she introduced me to the concept of an emotional alchemist. Hi, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. I'm just going to apologise in advance because my cat has been an absolute pain for the last, I don't know if you can see him. <laughs> oh, yes. We'll be fine. You know, that's that's the way life is. It's just real life. It is. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a good thing about lockdown is it did make 
it okay for real life to intrude on everything else? That's right. Sometimes a child comes in and wants you to slice an apple or a cat pounces on your shoulder. That's right. Sliced apple features looms large in You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. I I, uh, deal with frequent interruptions so much that I don't even really consider them interruptions anymore. They're just sort of part of the process. Okay. Well, can we start? um, I'm sure you're absolutely sick of going over this, but for anybody (laughs) who doesn't, yeah, you know where I'm going straight away. But for anybody who doesn't know about Good Bones, can you tell us uh, a bit for the benefit of listeners about about when Good Bones went viral? Yeah. um, Good Bones is a poem I wrote in 2015, just sitting in a coffee shop. It took me, I don't know, about 20 minutes to to get the first draft out, which was pretty close to the to the final. I think I had one, one or two little changes after, after that first draft. And then I sent it out to a bunch of places. It was rejected from some places. And then, um, I placed it in an online journal called Waxwing where it was slated for publication the following summer. Cause this is how publishing works. You write something and you, and you send it out and you send it out. And then sometimes it takes, you know, months, if not years before you finally see it out in the world. And so the, the, the week that it was published online, it was June 2016. And it was the same week that the Pulse nightclub shooting happened here in the States in Orlando, Florida, where um, a man went into a gay nightclub and um, shot many, many people. Um, and then the same week, MP Joe Cox was killed in England. And so, um, the poem went viral here and there for two different reasons, but both because of terrible, violent things happening. And so, you know, here I am a mom of two small kids in central Ohio. This is a poem from my third book. So I'd published a couple of books before, but you know, poetry readership is, you know, maybe more particularly in the States, somewhat limited. It's a small discerning audience compared to the audience of, you know, say fiction, for example, or even nonfiction. And so when the poem went viral on social media, it was sort of just like a lightning strike in my life. And many wonderful things happened my readership grew immediately overnight which is a wonderful thing this is this is what you hope for when you're writing in your home in obscurity you know parenting two small people and and as i write about and you could make this place beautiful it also complicated my life in ways because i was and am the primary caregiver for these two people And I'd worked from home and had been self-employed for a while at that point and still am, which made me incredibly available to my children and my then husband um, to manage all the things at home. And so suddenly uh, invitations were coming in to come give a reading someplace or attend a literary festival or teach a class for a week, maybe. And it was an exciting time, but also a time of like extreme unexpected change. And so there were growing pains that came, that came with that. Kind of the understatement of the year. Um, So in in the first instant, was your husband excited for you? Was he as excited as you were? Or were you kind of trepidatious about it from the get-go? 
know. I mean, I, one of the things I really try to do in the book is like not ventriloquize through other people or try to project into other people's thinking or feelings. And I mean, that includes my children. Like I, I only know what people said and did, and I can only report what people said and did. And so I, I really, the boundary I've drawn for myself is I don't try to pretend to know what anyone else was thinking or feeling. So the, the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know if anybody can be as happy for us as we are when something like that happens, you know, especially when it complicates things logistically, you know, it's, it's always, these kinds of things are always bittersweet. Anyone's advancement in their career or promotion or move because of a job change, or even, even, you know, a pregnancy, like going from one child to two children, all of these things are like, the best things, but also not uncomplicated because they require us to recalibrate in our lives. And sometimes I think we rise to the occasion and do that really well. So I, I don't know, but it ended up being um, a problem. I mean, the same line has been, um, I mean, at the point we're talking, the book has been massively successful in the States. Um, you could make this place beautiful. And it's been really, really widely publicized. And the same line keeps coming up again and again, often in headlines, often slightly different. So I'm not sure which one's actually right. But my life was never the same after that poem. and My marriage was never the same after that poem. Um, I don't know which one is accurate. I think a lot of people will identify with that kind of, you know, moment where there's something really great that happens for you. And then when you, you know, when you come out of that moment, you take a step back and you look at what's going on around you without putting words in anyone's mouth, but maybe the vibes that you're receiving. Yeah. I mean, my life and my marriage were not the same after that poem in ways wonderful and not so wonderful. Right. And, and actually that poem, I, I've had an ambivalent relationship with it for my own reasons, you know, because it's, it's also even coming out of the good news of it myself, I felt a sort of strange vibe to use that word, because what does it mean when your readership grows exponentially and your, you know, quote, career for lack of a better word? It's always weird to think of that in terms of being a writer when that is directly related to the suffering of others. And so I've, I've always had, I mean, marriage issues aside, this has always been complicated for me because when I see my social media upticking and people are sharing good bones widely, what it means for me as a writer is not the same thing that it means for everyone else, right? You, you'd think, oh my gosh, this is so great. People are reading my poem. Maybe they'll buy that book or maybe they'll find their way to something else I've written. This is, this is what we want. We want to be read. But the flip side of that is they're sharing it probably because something bad has happened and I need to go check the news sites and find out what has happened. And so the poem as was not only a sort of secret, um, slow moving disaster barometer in my own relationship. It sort of acts as a disaster barometer in the wider world, where if it's being shared a lot, something's wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's a complete good news, bad news barometer. And it, and also, you know, because it's about, as well as about, you know, the balance between 
keeping our children safe and keeping them informed, I suppose, as, as informed as they need to be. And it kind of, that came, that came full circle and completely almost because of that poem. Maybe not. I mean, that's a bit too big a commitment to put on the poor poem, but that kind of became a, a situation you were in with your children, even more so because of the poem, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, because I, I don't think the poem didn't cause the divorce by any stretch of the imagination, but it certainly, I mean, if I don't think any marriage or any relationship ends because of one thing. And if you think it does, you're not looking closely enough. You know, it's like when you're arguing with your partner about something and then you realize like, we're not actually fighting about what we want to watch on TV. Like this is not about who packed or didn't pack the pacifier, right? Like this is, um, this is about probably a whole bunch of things stacked up behind us that we haven't communicated about. And so the, the, the sort of image I use in the book is like many, many cracks. And so by the time you get to a large fissure, it's because there are many hairline cracks that have probably come together and joined to make a larger crack. And for me, my becoming more known as a poet as a result of Good Bones going viral was one crack. When there was an extract, the extract that was published in The Cut before the book that came out, that really triggered, didn't it, uh, a kind of, or triggered or tapped into a low-level conversation that had been happening about women and ambition. And it, um, I mean, in part, you got lucky stroke unlucky in that it coincided with Taylor Swift and Joe Elwin splitting up. So you became part of a trend, you know. But it, I thought it, it was really interesting because you're Gen X and I'm Gen X. And it seemed to me that those two things happening at the same time, and I think there was another piece, it made a bunch of millennial women who had thought, this is not something that affects us. We've got it all going on. We've got it completely nailed. We're not going to have those division of labor issues in our relationships. It seemed like they suddenly, they read those things and they saw uh, the Taylor Swift split and they went, oh my God, this is still a conversation. And this could happen. It happened to them. It could happen to us. Yeah. We're not immune. And I mean, to be fair, I think as a Gen X woman who went to college, went to graduate school, published a book before I got married, had my kids in my 30s, you know, did things very differently from my own mother. I thought I was immune. I really did. I think I I thought, well, I'm building a different kind of family. I'm building a different kind of relationship. I'll be offering my kids a different template. And then when my marriage started unraveling, I kind of looked around and I realized, oh, wait a minute, actually, newsflash, what I've built looks remarkably like my own upbringing, even though it, it, it shouldn't in a lot of ways. You know, I didn't get married at 20. I didn't move in with my husband straight out of high school. And I thought of us as being also more politically left certainly than my, both of my parents, I was very complicit and also complacent in what I had built and, and marriages are co-created, right? So I did that. And that's, I mean, that kind of self-assessment is really the undergirding of this memoir, which is not finger pointing about like what happened and what someone else did or what someone else didn't do or how other people failed me. I'm not interested in that at all. It doesn't help me heal or move forward in my life to think about the actions of others. It just is not useful. Um, it might make you feel better. 
in the short term <laughs> to feel like it's not about you, but that's just not, that's not accurate. So what helps me figure out how to move forward in a more constructive way is how I was complicit and complacent and what I built for myself and also what I built and modeled for my own kids. And when that piece went viral in the cut, it was both heartening and disheartening, right? Heartening because I was like, I am not alone. People my age, people younger, people older, I am hearing from so many people. Everyone I'm hearing from has been sent this from 12 of their friends of various ages and relationship statuses. That's heartening because I'm not alone, right? I feel seen, I feel understood. It's disheartening because we have been having in writing and in person this conversation about division of labor, mental load, can women have it all? We have been having these conversations dozens of years and we'll be having these conversations next year and we'll be having these conversations in 10 years because I think we keep rebuilding the same template or maybe a slightly different template from the one we inherited from our parents. And it's, I think, going to take us quite a while. I mean, before this, obviously, lockdown had happened. And that was a point, a real point where I started to see pretty much everybody I spoke to talking about how their lives had become about schooling their kids and and providing food, endless, endless food. I don't know how, I mean, I'm not saying no men said that. I'm sure some men did, but I didn't meet any. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my impression, both anecdotally, anecdotally from my own life and from, from what I've been reading is that could have been a sort of great equalizing moment right? Everybody is, everybody is at home, right? So let's say, um, you know, in a cishet marriage, because that's, pri that's primarily what we're talking about here, right? Uh, mom and dad, let's say, are both working from home. They're both professional. They both have high level jobs. They're both zooming the day away in constant meetings and kid or children, you know, one, two, three, four, however many are doing school at home. Whose office door is constantly being knocked on for the slicing of the apples, right? Or the, or the, I can't get on my Zoom links not working, or I, I can't find my math folder or, and what I saw and heard was that it was primarily women. And I think it's because when you are the default parent, that is who the kids feel most comfortable and most natural going to for all the things. They do what they've always done. And if it's been you, it's going to be you, even if the other person is an arm's length away. And if the perception in your home is that one parent's work is more valuable and sort of more off limits and more protected. Their time is more protected. Their space is more protected. And you're more porous and permeable. Your time and your space 
is you're the more interruptible human being in your household. That's what's going to happen. And I've seen it bear out and it doesn't matter. I mean, I've seen women who husbands are on sabbatical who are still taking off work to manage their children. I see this and it's like, I feel seen. And I also feel very defeated because I keep thinking, shouldn't we be someplace else by now in the year of our Lord, 2023? We're still having these conversations. These articles are still coming out. They're still going viral. The the conversation rises up and then it dies down until the next article is written. The next book is written. And I do think we're making progress because it seems like we're having these conversations more frequently, but good gracious, we're tired. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I I think we are having conversations more frequently and maybe louder. Or maybe more voices, so the voices are amplified. But it's exhausting, and you look at so many women in midlife who are who are exhausted from, you know, the having it all, doing it all transition. But also who are, you know, and this is really borne out by so many of the women I've spoken to. Is like who are often I don't know I don't know whether waking up is the kind of I don't I, I'm worried that that sounds pejorative but uh, kind of turning around maybe in their life and going is this it yeah I mean I think we think of the what happens in midlife as being a midlife crisis right and I think we tend to think of the people having the classic midlife crisis as mostly being male um, where you sort of wake up in midlife and you realize like it's I'm I'm not young and fun anymore and my life isn't as fun as I thought it would be and so they buy a convertible and and find someone 20 years younger so they can sort of regain some sense of youth. I mean, I kind of, I was thinking of the talking head song, like, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful life, right? Which is a classic midlife crisis song. But I was thinking about it more in the, in the context of like, what's the opposite of crisis? It's recovery or return. So for me, a lot of the imagery I use, and you can make this place beautiful, is about feeling invisible or feeling like I've disappeared or feeling like I'm a ghost in my own home. And so that kind of waking up or recovery or return is sort of like the opposite of a disappearing act. It's like a reappearing act. Like, how do I get back to myself? What have I bargained away over the years? How did I sort of unknowingly make myself small to accommodate the needs of other people. And I don't mean that from a selfish perspective, because I think the, especially as women, we're so culturally rewarded for self-sacrifice that it's, it makes me nervous to be like, now it's my time. I'm reclaiming myself because someone will be like, well, what about your children? It can't be your time. You're a mother. It has to be it has to be about them. And I don't think about it in a selfish way. I think about it in a, what good am I as a parent, as someone who is shepherding other human beings through this world? I hardly understand myself. If I have folded myself up so small, I don't know where to find myself anymore. What model is that? Not only for my daughter, But for my son, if I've made myself a service provider who is largely invisible in my own home, what does that tell my daughter about the possibilities for herself as she grows older? What does that tell my son about what to expect 
from a partner. It's it's a bad deal for everybody to do that. At what point do you think you realized that, that you looked back and thought, I have folded myself up into this tiny, tiny little envelope where all the things I thought I was and wanted to be are all set aside in the pursuit of, I don't know, running a happy ship, keeping, keeping the peace. When did you become aware? For me, it was crisis. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it was a very literal moment. I think most of us are not asked point blank to sideline something that we love in order to accommodate our spouse. I think that it's, it's usually happens in, in quieter, more insidious ways that are harder for us to see until after the fact. Like, oh, I stopped playing tennis on Saturdays because, you know, my partner wanted to play golf and it was just easier for me to give up the tennis or move it to a different day. Or I stopped having dinner with my girlfriends because I felt bad about not being there for bedtime and bath time with the kids. I think it often happens in small ways. For me, it was very, it was a very obvious move where I was asked not to travel in service of my writing anymore. Um, I was asked to stay home and I agreed to do that. And so I agreed to stay home for a period of time, sort of indefinitely. And when I realized that my partner's behavior was not improving or an attitude toward me was not softening, given those sacrifices, it occurred to me, not only this isn't working, I think the larger question finally dawned on me, which I felt quite silly not seeing this as I acquiesced. Why would you want, like what kind of person asks their partner to sideline something they've dreamt about doing their entire adult lives, predating you, in fact? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think that there's, a, I'm trying to remember the line where you you were talking about being away, you know, for your work and you feel like, you know, you're just, you're just missed as staff and you you need to be back in your post. You talk a, a couple of times, and this really resonated with me being an eldest daughter, but you talk about your, um, your strong firstborn daughter energy. What part did you think that played in your approach to got to keep all the balls in the air, got to Got to fix it. Got to fix it. Everything's, I've got to make sure everything's all right, or at least looks all right. Oh, it's huge. Huge. I mean, I, I think that sort of perfectionistic controlling, right? Like slightly bossy. I've got it. I've got it. Yeah. I mean, just hand. Yeah. I've got this. Like I, I can do it. I can manage it. I've got this. No, you don't need to, you don't need to lift a finger. I've got this. And really feeling a sense of self-worth from how much I'm able to do without help. Um, And now I realize as a single mom, like, that's not a merit badge I need for my sash. Like, does everything alone without assistance is not a merit badge I need for my sash. Like, it ultimately will make you resentful. And it's just not necessary. Like, there is no, there is no reason this was not always the way that it was, right? That like we were expected to do so much without the help of elder generations and neighborhoods and communities and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And, you know, it used to take a village. It still takes a village. And yet if you have strong firstborn energy, there's some, there's some sense of like accomplishment 
from doing things. Yes, I did it. See, I did it. And it's, it's, um, there's a, there's a very little redhead vibe to that. Like I shall have to do it myself. I I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I can manage. There's a fixer aspect to that too, where I really believed for a period of time that with my own behavior, acquiescence, own choices, I could even fix the marriage single-handedly. Um, I also believed when I sat down to write this book that I could understand what happened to it single-handedly via my own singular perspective, which is so ridiculous. How could anyone understand the unraveling of something between two plus people on their own? It's just not possible. So that's, that's something I'm realizing in middle age. And of course, hindsight is deeply clarifying and sometimes embarrassing because of how much we realize now we could not have done or understood. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It really struck me when I was reading the the small part where you talk about having marriage counselling after you've discovered that your husband was having an affair. It's a really long time before you talk about the fact who's having an affair because you're constantly talking about your work. Yeah, it, it makes no sense. But also because I could control and fix that portion. So if, if the problem were only me, if the problem were only my travel, if the problem were only the size that my career was growing into, that was something I had control. I could shrink it, right? I could stop. I could shrink it. I could control that. The little red hen had that under control. And so the minute I brought up other issues, because there were, it was not ever one thing, you know, it was the moment I brought up other issues outside of my control, my gut sense was the whole thing was going to spiral out of my hands and I could no longer fix it. And if I let, if I let the narrative be that it was me, that was the problem, then I could change it and I could control it. Um, I see that now and I'm like, oh goodness, like, I need therapy from the therapy. It's it's nested in that way. 
Yes. Yeah. When you're talking about divorce and the fact that it's it's about so much more than that. I mean, yes, there's the practical side of getting a divorce from a lawyer, which like can't be any fun at all and clearly wasn't any fun at all. But really, it's the emotional side, isn't it? The fact that your person is no longer your person. Your shared history, well, it's still there, but it's it's no longer your shared history. And the future that you thought you knew has gone. And I think I can't help thinking that it's that is one of the reasons that this book has resonated so much in the States, because it's about those losses are actually, yes, there's the practical loss of how do I manage to keep the house? But it's those emotional losses, which are the real upheaval. I think so too. And I think, I think we've all had them, even if we haven't had a major breakup or a divorce. You know, if you're estranged from a parent, if you're, if you, if you've had a friend who ghosted you or who you've lost touch with, you have these memories that you're only able to really share with that person, that family member or that friend. And suddenly the past is a bit of a minefield because you wander back through your mind into those memories. And there are suddenly even happy memories are bittersweet when that person is no longer in your life, right? Because you can smile and be like, oh, we did this. Oh, remember when we did that hilarious thing together, that private joke, that little song, that trip we took. You have this flash of pleasure because the memory itself, you had a good time. But then the flip side of that, the shadow side is it's gone now. Does that person remember that time? How do they feel when they remember it? Do they think of me in the same way or am I just sort of poof, you know, vanished from their lives? What do I do with this flotsam and jetsam of my life when it bobs to the surface and I have to contend with these quote unquote happy memories with a person who I now have either a non-existent or painful attachment? I know I'm not going to be making new memories with this person, so... What is their life now? Do they have children? Do they have, you know, it's, it's just, it's really complicated. And I think even for, even for people who haven't been through what I've been through, I think all of us have those sort of lost dear relationships to us that thinking of them is a source of both pleasure and pain. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think that maybe he had to disappear in order for you to reemerge? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I would like to believe that, you know, I see, I have friends who are happily married and have been for many years and who have evolved in their partnerships. You know, maybe one career has changed or both career careers have changed or one person sort of had the more demanding career and now the other person is sort of like risen up and they have the more demanding career. And maybe they've even changed who is the primary parent. So I've seen these things happen in friends and family members' relationships. So I believe that it's possible. Like I don't believe that my that my marriage or my family had to be sacrificed on the altar of like getting myself back. I, I don't believe that. Now that said in this particular relationship, do I think this was ultimately inevitable now with the benefit of hindsight? I do like given the number of cracks and the size of them, I don't think there was coming back from it. I think once you have a certain level of resentment and secrecy, 
in a relationship, it's really hard without a lot of like real painful, open work to get back to a place of, of trust and equity. But I'm not so jaded that I don't think it's possible for a lot of other people. You went to see an emotional alchemist, didn't you? I did. What the hell is one of those? (laughs) (laughs) I tried everything. Oh my gosh, I tried everything. I really, and I, I wasn't a particularly sort of like woo person. Like I, um, you know, I actually didn't even start therapy until a few years ago. So I wasn't, I wasn't even doing this sort of conventional healing, let alone any unconventional healing. But at a certain point I was suffering so profoundly. I just wanted to feel better and the writing wasn't working. And the meditation wasn't working and the running wasn't working and the dance parties weren't working. And, and, you know, I really didn't want to try anything that wasn't good for me. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to escape. I didn't want to make it go away. I wanted to, I wanted to work through it and feel better. And so I went to psychics and I did, you know, acupuncture and Reiki and, you know, anything guided meditation And so a friend of mine was like, I have spoken to this woman who calls herself an emotional alchemist. She is able, according to her, to um, sense the sort of energy and energy blockages in your body and kind of move it from a distance without necessarily being in a room or touching you. Like Reiki is more about the sort of like hands moving over your body in close proximity. And the way that I would best describe this is it's like Reiki at a distance in a way, like being able to move, sense and move blockages internally from a distance in order to help you better metabolize experience. And so the blockages, as she described it, come, these energy blockages come from unmetabolized experience. Like you're just not working through it. And so it's just sort of, sitting there like a weight in your body it's like emotional constipation for lack of a better and so you speak with her on the phone and she senses where the energy is and then goes through these processes where she breathes with you talks to you you repeat certain things and it's supposed to sort of move energetically these blockages and I did feel better and, and I did, and I still practice some of the things that she spoke to me about. And it's hard to know. I mean, frankly, it's hard to know in life what is, what is placebo, right? What is because you believe that it's working, that it's working and what is at, you know, quote unquote, scientifically measurably working. But if your goal is to suffer less and feel better and you do, frankly, it doesn't much matter. Honestly, anything that is not bad for my health even something that seems sort of witchy or silly or strange. I just don't, I don't have a lot of shame around those things. Like, I don't know. I just want to feel better and be able to move forward and work through these things. And I mean, please, 15 years ago, people didn't talk as openly as they do now, just about being in therapy. And now we talk so honestly about my therapist or my, you know, in my case, my multiple therapists. Why, why, why not have two? Um, and I and I think the more we're able to talk about whatever it is that helps us metabolize experience, that helps us process these things that happen so that we can be better for ourselves and for others. Yeah, we should have less shame around those those conversations. 
I mean, writing certainly helped. I think nothing makes me feel more like me than just sitting and putting pen to paper because it's a conversation I'm having with myself on the page, uncensored, without somebody looking over my shoulder. You know, it's just me in my own mind. That helped a lot. Spending time with my friends, particularly my female friends, which is something I didn't do as much when I was married. I mean, I had like, a, you know, a monthly dinner with a couple of girlfriends that I still have. And I would see people out and about with the kids, you know, at the library at story time or at school pickup. But I didn't go out with friends as much, especially when my kids were small, because it was so hands on deck. I think people can relate to that. And now that they're getting a little bit older, I'm realizing that's not something I want to, to let go of, you know, and so spending, spending quality time with my friends in a way that is really important. One of the things I noticed when I was reading on the, uh, around the internet before, before we chatted is that there's a kind of a tendency to say that this book is for women, that it's aimed at women. And I was thinking about that and thinking, A, I think women will love it. I think women in midlife will love it, but not exclusively. I wondered, how do you feel about that? I think you're right. And actually some of the most powerful emails, letters, in-person comments, um, DMs, you know, like Twitter messages that I have received about this book have been from men. Um, many of the married men, many of the parents, and some of the some of the conversations that that I'm having with men around this book give me hope about this sort of needle moving as we were talking about earlier. Like, why do we still keep having these conversations? Part of the reason we still keep having these conversations about labor and mental load and who does what in the home is because if only women are having these conversations, we're not, we're only half of... (laughs) We're the half that know it already. Thank you. We're preaching to the choir. I'm not interested in only preaching to the choir. So if I, you know, I got an email from, from a physician who was like, I read this book. It spurred me to sit down with my wife and have a discussion, like a real talk about who does what and about how much I'm around or not around and about what she might want to do if she had more time and flexibility and freedom. And he's like, and I don't even think I would have had that discussion with her if I hadn't read this book and thought, oh, I see myself in an uncomfortable way in some of these stories. Like I feel kind of implicated in some of these stories. I've also heard from men who are the primary caregivers in their households. Um, I'm hearing from both men and women who are not married, who are, who are, you know, a, a generation or at least half a generation behind me who are saying, this is actually making me think about the kinds of conversations I want to have before I get married and have kids, you know, like what, what kind of like pre-work can we do so that we don't wake up or turn around or realize at 45 that we've already built this thing and now we have to dismantle it. Like, what if we just built it differently because we knew better at 20 what we wanted the shape of the thing to be? It's a lot easier to build something than it is to dismantle and rebuild something else um, or to try to on the fly remodel 
something that has been built for many years in a certain in a certain shape. And so, no, I agree with you. I don't think this book is just for women. In fact, it can't be just for women because these conversations are affecting are affecting all of us. And they're definitely, I mean, the, the patriarchy hurts men. You know, misogyny doesn't just hurt women, it hurts men. Patriarchy hurts men. And they're not solvable by one of us alone. You know, these are these are problems that we all need to put our heads together with to solve. How has uh, this experience, and in fact, writing through it, how has that affected your approach to subsequent relationships? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I've, I've been dating someone now for three plus years, but we do not live together. And we do not, you know, that therefore parent one another's children. That balance feels really comfortable for me. Like it's, I, I will admit it's difficult for me to imagine because now I know myself. I know the firstborn daughter energy. I know my caretaking impulse. If people live in my home, I will take care of them. And that might look a lot like parenting, even if they're an adult male. It's healthy and good for me to be able to focus on myself in my own home and to focus on caring for my own kids and to maintain sort of boundary and space and independence too in this way. Cause like, I know I can do it on my own. I've been doing it on my own. And then the relationship is this sort of beautiful bonus that is not like, like, I don't want to say it's unnecessary because I think that diminishes what relationships give us, right? Like my friendships aren't unnecessary, even though they don't happen in my house and my friends aren't parenting my children. They are necessary, but, but it's just, it's a logistical change, right? And so for me, it feels, it feels really comfortable to, to sort of have both, like to have my space and my autonomy, which at this point in my life feels really important to me. And yet to also have relationship. Before I ask you the questions that I always ask at the end, I just want to say, do you realize how much more, I don't want to say you look more youthful because that's not quite right, but how much more youthful the atmosphere is around you than in your author photo? Well, you're also seeing me first thing in the morning. Yeah, but I've seen you on social media and <laughs> stuff too. It's just, it just struck me as really interesting. And I know that that's, I know that's posed and it's an author photo, but I, I don't know when it was taken. 2021. So it's two years old. So it's post, that's a post-divorce photo, um, but a, and a post like peak pandemic photo, but it's, my hair is a much longer much longer now. And I wear glasses all the time now instead of contact lenses because I'm getting old and my eyes are persnickety little things. But I think I feel more um, playful in my life now. I feel like um, more confident in my ability to manage things. And I, I think there's something about parenting in my early 30s. I didn't quite feel like a grown up when I had young children. And so I sort of had to like be the grown up, And that meant like keeping it all together and being in charge. And everyone had to go to bed at this time. And everyone had to nap at this time. And you definitely need to have these kinds of vegetables every day. 
And I think I just didn't quite know what I was doing. So I had all these rules for myself about this must mean I'm doing it correctly. And, and as happens between one child and two, and then from, I think, again, from married life, in my case, to, to single motherhood, I've realized like, we're all okay. There are lots of different ways to do this that are equally valid. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's fine. If a half hour goes by and we're not all in bed, or if someone isn't in the shower at 745, what are the stakes really? You know, we've, we've all been through so much over the past few years. What are the stakes really like to not running such a tight ship? And so I feel more flexible, I think, in my 40s than I did, than I did 10 years ago. And, and I'm, I'm sure I'm parenting in a more flexible way too. To ask the kids. Yeah, I think they'd, I think they'd say for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Questions I always ask, what's your emotional age? I don't, I mean, I, I'd say definitely not 20s because 20s is so emotional. I feel like our 20s is so emotionally fraught. I cared so much about things that didn't matter in my 20s. I think I'd shed a lot of that in my 30s, but not so much as I have now. I don't know. Actually, on second thought, maybe I'm exactly the emotional age I am now because my mother keeps saying the older you get, the less you care about things that don't matter. And so I I think I care less about the things that don't. I think my priorities are clearer now at 46 than they were at 35. But my kids always say that I seem younger than a lot of the other moms. And I think that's probably because I have a nose piercing and my arms are covered in tattoos. And so there's something about me that feels a little younger than um, than some of the other moms of their friends. Yeah, it could be that or it could just be, like you say, being more playful. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm. I mean, how many of them have got mums who can roller skate backwards with a, with a margarita? I can't remember hand. what the cocktail margarita. <laughs> not yeah. very many, not very many. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, it's true. That's my goal to do that. <laughs> Come on over. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> uh, give us a book recommendation. So it can be a book that's always mattered a lot to you or it can just be something great you read. I um recently read Amy Key's new memoir. It's called Arrangements in Blue. It's so good. Loved that book and was like so consumed by my own book's release and tour and parenting and madness that I was not um, in a position to to write a little blurb endorsement for that book. But I, I want to sort of shout to the rooftops what a beautiful, meaningful book that was for me. No, I loved that book too. What advice would you give younger women? Do not be afraid to take up space. Do do not make yourself small. If only we'd all known that. Oh, you know what though? We wouldn't have heard it. Someone could have told me, perhaps someone did, right? And, and, and you either don't hear it or you don't think it applies to you or you don't think you are. That's the thing, isn't it? It's recognizing that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. I think. I think oftentimes you, you, we, it needs to have happened, unfortunately, to kind of to kind of get it. I think you're right. Um, who is an older woman who inspires you? Kathy Fagan. 
the poet Kathy Fagan. I mean, she's not much older than me, but she um, directed my MFA thesis. So she's been a mentor of mine as a poet 23 years now, since I was in my early 20s. And her books just keep getting better. And when you find someone as a poet who you love their first book and you love their second book and you love their third book, and then you see them publishing again, again, again in their 50s, and you think, certainly it's going to start sliding. Like, how can every book be better than the last one? And they are. I mean, her latest book is called Bad Hobby, and it's her best Yeah, she just won a Guggenheim. And that's the goal for me, right? I just, like, I'm not in competition with anybody else. I'm in competition with myself. I want to keep writing things that interest me. I don't want to ever feel like my next book is not as interesting to me as my last book. Because then what's the point of even writing and publishing it? And so she's someone who is always sort of like pushing herself formally, and doing new things and doing it just better and better and staying really rigorous and interesting and strange and is such a great role model. What's your superpower? Oh, I think it's also my, um, my kryptonite, right? Because it can be weaponized against you. That's the thing. If you are a big feeler, one must be very careful with that. Like that kind of sensitivity and attunement I think is is both both my greatest strength as a writer and as a parent and as a person, um, and also can can get in the way. It can get in the way, so I have to I have to keep I have to keep an eye on it. But I would say empathy. Um, and last one: How many fucks do you give? Oh, fewer than I used to. Yeah, fewer than I used to. I used to give all the fucks. I gave so many fucks. I just, I like, I actually stole fucks from other people. (laughs) That's how many fucks I gave. Um, And it was exhausting being someone who gives so many fucks. And now um, I'm not, I mean, I'm still a firstborn daughter. You can't really scrub all of that. You can't. Sadly not. You cannot scrub the the big GAF energy out of a firstborn daughter entirely. But I feel like it's, it's not out of proportion. That's fantastic. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you for making the time to talk to me. Oh no, this has been, this has been a, a pleasure, a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, you might enjoy my conversation with Danny Shapiro and Curtis Sittenfeld. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters podcast extras, and more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.